Our epistle lesson is found in Revelation chapter 17, reading the entire chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, today we come to a difficult chapter, visions of things that are hard for us to understand. It is only from our weakness that we can look to you for understanding and wisdom. And so guide us today. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead us to you. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his novel Fahrenheit 451, 
Ray Bradbury presents to us a futuristic society, futuristic American society, in which it is illegal to possess or to buy books. Citizens are only allowed to consume information that the government provides to them. They're actually a class of workers, an entire vocation known as firemen, and their entire job inside of Fahrenheit 451 is to go about burning books. When books are found, when they're discovered, they're to be destroyed. Guy Montag, one of the key characters in the novel, is one of these firemen. He went about his work. He didn't think much of it at all. It was just simply his job. Most everyone in society was content with the situation, and it seemed natural to burn books. But then Montag meets a young woman, a woman named Clarice, and Clarice offers an explanation of the role of a fireman from the perspective of history. And she asked Montag whether he knew that firemen originally put out fires rather than actually setting them. Montag questioned her as to how she knew this, and she said it was because she read books. Montag was conflicted by this. Here was one who read books, but what she was saying was something appealing and attractive but yet it disagreed with everything he knew to be true. Clarice had an alternate perspective that disagreed with the prevailing order around her. She had knowledge from the outside that gave her a different perspective. And it is this alternate perspective, this different angle on events, a different take on the world, that the letter of Revelation also offers to us. In this strange letter, what God seeks to do is impress on us a different order of things, a different angle, a different approach and perspective. And in John 9, in, in verse 9, John tells us that to have that different perspective, that it calls for a mind with wisdom, that it takes wisdom from God in order to discern the difference between two things. One, a prevailing order that operates in the world that is run by the beast and by this lady named Babylon. And secondly, an order of the world that's run by the lamb who was slain and by the lamb's bride, the church. And God wanted these early Christians who lived in the Roman Empire in the first century, those Christians then and there, to embrace this different order. And God today wants Christians spread throughout the world, here and now, also to have this wisdom and embrace this different order, to embrace an outside perspective, a heavenly perspective on earthly events. In order to accomplish this, we have a series of bizarre visions throughout the book of Revelation. There are beasts and there are bowls. There are trumpets and there are witnesses. There are dragons and there are angels. It all can be a confusing muck. But what we said, that it's also easy to cut through 
That when we appreciate that symbols, in order to read them literally, means that we must interpret them symbolically. And we've met this beast before in chapter 13. He is a representative authority of the states, of kingdoms, and of kings. And he has power to then persecute those who would seek to follow God and to honor Jesus. But we have a new character presented in chapter 17. And this character is Lady Babylon, a prostitute. She's an ally of the beast. She rides on his back. She comes to help the beast accomplish his agenda. She's an instrument in his great army. In chapter 18, we discover the fuller identity of this woman, Lady Babylon. It becomes clear. She is draped with products of international trade, if you look in verse 3. And then in verses 9 through 19, what we discover there is that she represents affluence and worldly comforts. She directs people to the beast and demands their allegiance. And once their allegiance has been sworn to the beast, she allows them to participate in those worldly comforts and that economic prosperity. And so John sees that the nations eagerly cooperate with this lady Babylon in order to participate in that material prosperity and the social standing that's accompanied with it. And in order to resist this seduction, John says that you and I, what we require is wisdom, that we need wisdom from God. Because in the day-to-day life, in your life and in my life, these forces that we're speaking of in terms of beast and of a prostitute, they don't present themselves in that form. No, they're far more subtle. They're deceptive. And God offers wisdom to us that we be able to discern when we are encountering these forces. And so it's critical for us to ask this morning, what does this wisdom offer to us? And there's three things particularly that we'll see. First, we'll see that God grants us to learn of the seductive power of this lady Babylon. But then not only is he going to grant us to learn of the seductive power, he's going to instruct us in our security against her influence, and he'll also lead us finally to understand the demise of this prostitute. So first, he grants us to learn of the seductive power of the prostitute. If you follow in verse 1 and 2, we see that an angel invites John to come and witness the judgment of Lady Babylon. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth had committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Babylon is, of course, the ancient idolatrous city that sent Israel into exile, but she's depicted here as an alluring and seductive force. And it's important for us to note her great influence. She's envisioned as sitting upon the waters. But then if you 
look to verse 15, you see what this is a reference to, that sitting upon the waters is sitting over the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. The idea of sitting is to have rule and to have authority. And so Lady Babylon has influence over all the nations of the earth. We see this further in verse 2 where it says that the kings of the earth are engaged with her. And then we see that the peoples of the earth are drunk upon her wine. That is simply to say that they are influenced by her, directed by her, and actually numb to her devices. They go with the flow. They are directed. And so the question for us is why? Why is the seductive power of Lady Babylon so compelling? Why is she so attractive? In verse 4, we learn something of this attraction because she is clothed in a particular manner. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. What is interesting and critical for us to appreciate here is that Lady Babylon is presented to us in the very same clothing that the bride of the Lamb will be presented to us in chapters 18 through 21. And so, yes, Lady Babylon is attractive. She has a certain power and potency to her that she is presented to us not as something ugly that we would be disinterested in, but rather she's a counterfeit of what is true and good and beautiful in the church. She is a cheap imitation of the real thing, but she does hold out a promise of life and blessing to those who would enter into her company. We see that even John is taken away with her beauty. If you follow in verse 6, when John sees her, he marveled greatly. He was overtaken by her in a certain way. And an angel has to awaken John from his stupor. And so it's wise for us to be aware of the incredible seductive power that economic prosperity and material comforts provide to us because the beast uses these in order to co-opt us into his service. And this is what we find is the agenda of Lady Babylon. But it is a counterfeit of God's design. It's not what God truly has for us. And so it's critical for us to always engage that deeply, that what the world presents to us in all of its promises is something less than what God actually has for us. No matter how it may dress up, no matter how it may clothe itself, it is a cheap counterfeit. But we always must be aware, if we are to have the wisdom of God living inside of us, we must be aware of that seductive power of Lady Babylon. But second, in the midst of that seductive power, we also learn that wisdom is going to teach us our security against this influence. If you follow in verse 8, we see a description of the beast that Lady Babylon rides upon. And we're told that he is the one who was and is not and who is about to arise 
from the bottomless pit. It's a very intriguing depiction for us here because it mimics something that we've seen in Revelation chapter 4. It mimics the description of God himself, the one who was and is and is yet to come. There is a comparison, but even more so, there is a contrast being presented here. That the beast, too, is a parody of the true and the living God. The beast is a counterfeit. And in verse 8, we learn that he impresses on those who follow him his name. And those names are the people whose names have not been recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And he has power over them to deceive them. But yet he has no power over those names who before the foundations of the world had their name recorded in the Lamb's book. And why is that? Why does he have no power over them? The key is in the name assigned to him. He was, he is not, and he is to come to his destruction. You see, the parody of the name is that this beast, this dragon, has been defeated. And it was a historical defeat. It's an objective event in history that we look back upon, that it is the defeat that was suffered in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus went down into the belly of the beast, into the power of the dragon, going down into death. But then because he was the righteous one, death could not hold him, and he destroyed death from within, and he was raised. And so Jesus has won the victory he has accomplished that on your behalf and on my behalf. It is full and it is final. There is no negotiating it. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see that this passage has not only the past tense, that the beast is not, but also that there's a future tense to the final vanquishing of the beast. That not only was he defeated, but he will be destroyed. If you follow in verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And for the Christian, in the midst of life, as we live out this alternative order under the wisdom of God, in a world that is drunk in the charms of Lady Babylon, what is critical for us is this security— this security of looking at the past victory of Jesus. And then confident because of that past victory that there will be a final destruction of all of evil. That is what we have before us. And that is what grounds the Christian in the present. Those two tenses of past and future. Confident that in Jesus Christ our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life that he holds us secure, that he will shepherd us, that he will guide us, that he will guard us. This is the conviction of the Christian that holds them fast. And friends, invest your faith in him. Invest your faith in the one who went down into death and rose. Invest your faith in the one who will return. Confident of those things you know in this present moment that he holds you fast and protects you 
as Lady Babylon works her charms. And finally, what we find here in chapter 17 is we also learn of the demise of the prostitute of Lady Babylon. It's somewhat of a surprise when we read verse 16 to find out how this unfolds in history. And the ten horns that you saw, referring to rulers on behalf of the beast, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. It's interesting to note here that Lady Babylon, an ally of the beast, one who brings people into the bidding of the beast, is actually devoured by the beast and his minions. And what this points out for us is the greedy nature of evil, that it's never content, that it's never satisfied, and that evil ultimately consumes itself. This is what evil always does. It oversteps. Throughout the Psalms, we're reminded that that the wicked lay a trap, and then they themselves fall into that trap. And this is what happens once again, but yet climatically, at the end of all of history, that the prostitute Babylon is consumed by her own allies, and her charms are destroyed, and she's stripped clean. And that in the wisdom of God, this is one of his judgments that brings about the salvation of his people. Because friends, when our Lord Jesus returns, When he returns, he brings salvation and righteousness, and he establishes equity. And this equity is the meeting out of justice, in which all the wrongs of the world will be righted, that sin and its impurities are scrubbed clean from the world, that we stand under the mercy of God, forgiven of our participation in that, and that God renews all things. Friends, the demise of Lady Babylon is our one great hope that we will walk in new creation, that God will be among us, that he will be a temple for us, that he will be our shepherd, that he will make all things new. And these are the things that wisdom points to. It offers us an alternate perspective upon the world, a world carried away in the agenda of the beast numb to the agenda, unaware of its design. But wisdom grants us to understand its pervasive influence. It offers us an understanding of our security as we too are tempted by the charms. But it gives us also a vision ahead of the future destruction of all evil. And so, friends, drink of this wisdom. Consume it. Devour it. It's the alternate perspective that you and I need as we persevere in following after our God. And so let's ask him for his help. Father, we do recognize our weakness. We recognize our susceptibility and that we, too, are prone to run after the counterfeit 
that which has no life, we often seek for life. And forgive us. Grant us this wisdom, wisdom from above, and write it upon our hearts that we would understand the craft and the agenda of Lady Babylon, that we would know our great security in Jesus, and that we would set our sights upon the demise of all evil on that great day. And so direct us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.